0: So according to reports from the Department of Defense, fighting has halted for 24 hours. This morning, however, there have been unconfirmed reports of explosions in western Ukraine near the the Polish border. Meanwhile, the Kremlin is accusing Kiev of delaying peace talks, and this comes as Ukraine's foreign minister has announced a potential new wave of sanctions on Russia by the European Union. So joining me to weigh in on all of this, we're quite honored uh, to have former national security advisor and retired General James Jones. He's the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and served as the 32nd Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. Welcome, General. We're so thrilled to have you with us.
1: Well, thank you very much, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, yeah. I finished my career as a national security advisor to uh, President Obama for his first two years. So uh, that was, uh, uh, combat in a different, uh, in a different venue.
0: <laughs> Certainly. Well, we're really uh, happy to ha- have you with us because of your expertise. So, you know, let's just get right into it. So what do you think is the likelihood of getting a, of a peace agreement coming together relatively quickly, which is what you know, all of us want to see.
1: Well, it would be, it would be great if, uh, if that could happen. Um, uh, I, I I don't have the visibility yet to see, um, you know, what Vladimir Putin is willing to uh, would be willing to agree to that would, would cause a lasting uh, ceasefire. But uh, uh, it, if there is one uh, that that holds, uh, that that's good, um, because I mean, what's at stake here is uh, Ukraine sovereignty. Uh, and it's a European democracy, uh, featuring featuring one of the Europe's most politically tolerant societies, and um, you know uh, they absolutely have the right to to determine their future. Um, so, uh, other things that are at stake are NATO's credibility. Um, what the alliance does and doesn't do will shape uh, the confidence uh, of the member states uh, and the respect it garners among. Of NATO's adversaries. So these are these are big uh, these are big things that go well beyond Ukraine. Um, it, it affects kind of the world order, I think, and for the foreseeable future.
0: If the end result of all of this is, you know, Ukraine almost moving closer to NATO out of a need to you know preserve itself in the future, and it, and that being you know totally contrary to, to Putin's stated rationale for doing so much of this, uh, you know what has has Putin miscalculated? Is this was this a mistake on their part if their goal was to was to prevent a kind of you know Ukraine NATO closer proximity or joining? And then also on the other hand, was it a mistake? if we were not going to have Ukraine join NATO, you know, was there, was it a mistake in not being clearer that that wasn't going to happen? Because if we, you know, we could have been clearer about that, perhaps this could have been averted or perhaps not.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, um, you know, we go back to the 2007 uh, Putin speech at the Munich security conference where he uh, lambasted NATO and, and any other kind of European organization that, uh, that uh, contrib- contributed to what he feels is uh, disrespect uh, for the Russian Federation and uh, what he thinks is the worst thing that happened in the 20th century and this dil- dissolution of the Soviet bloc uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and he, he blames NATO for that. He also believes that NATO uh, had agreed not to expand into the former Warsaw Pact countries and there was no evidence that there was an agreement uh, uh, that there w- was in any, any way binding or uh, certainly not in writing anywhere. Um, and so NATO expanded and I think he's held that, uh, he's held that obviously as a very sore point and still holds that NATO is kind of the arch enemy of the, of the Soviet Union. And, uh, of Russia and, and and by association of the United States. So, um, you know, that that was kind of the launching point. Um, and, uh, and I think he did miscalculate on a couple of fronts. One is I think he miscalculated on the uh, ability of NATO to come together. Uh, and I think the Biden administration deserves credit for uh, being one of the catalysts to cause that to happen, uh, but NATO is is together on this. And secondly, I think militarily they may have miscalculated on the resilience of the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, I uh, I've always said that you know before you get involved in uh, in changing the order of a of a sovereign country, whether it's Afghanistan or Vietnam or whatever. The 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 one thing that you have to do is calculate whether the people themselves are willing to fight for what you're offering, and it's obvious that the people are willing to fight against what Vladimir Putin is is offering, and um, and and so I think that um, with NATO being stronger, it's it certainly that certainly wasn't one of Vladimir Putin's goals, and I think in that sense he may have miscalculated.
0: Do you think he saw what happened recently in Afghanistan when we announced uh you know the the withdrawal and the, the the government that you know we had supported immediately collapses and flees? Do you think that he expected a similar thing? I mean, that's my hunch that he he perhaps expected Ukraine similarly as Zelensky and the government to you know immediately go into exile. And then even if he was not going to take the whole country, there would be a more friendly government and that you know that was a a that was his expectation based on what he'd seen in afghanistan and it it just as you said it did not go that way actually the people you know they they fought back Zelensky very bravely stayed and they met actual resistance that they just didn't expect
1: yeah i think that's absolutely uh correct i I think the uh the with the the withdrawal from afghanistan and the way it was executed um Probably caused people like Vladimir Putin and maybe President Xi to conclude that the United States really had had lost its ability to uh, influence uh, coalitions. Um, one of them being NATO. Um, and uh, you know, I think he was probably overconfident in terms of the the cohesion of of the NATO alliance. Um, and he, he saw this as an opportunity um, to do what I think he would, had thought would be a lightning strike to seize the capital and replace the government. Um, that hasn't happened. And you know every day that goes by where it hasn't happened uh, creates a, a, a situation where Vladimir Putin uh, at the end of this, whatever this is, I I hope it remains a a pariah to the world order because that's a good message for other dictators to to think about. So this, this, as I said, this is about Ukraine for sure, but but the ramifications uh, on the world order are are extremely high as well.
0: How do you evaluate the Russian military's performance uh, through this because obviously we hear a lot about how badly it's going for them. We hear about, you know, their supply chains are about to collapse. They're going to you know run out of food, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, the, the media is very understandably pro-Ukraine and sympathetic to Ukraine. So I don't know if, if an overly rosy picture is being, is being presented, you know, about the Ukrainian position. H- has it really been as bad as, you know, some of the most pro-Ukrainian voices are making it out to be? Because they are, you know, they are slowly conquering the country they're meeting resistance but what do you how would you grade their performance i
1: mean some of our military experts uh you know before the before uh putin's army crossed into ukraine were speculating that you know three or four days you know he would be in the capital and so on and so forth so uh, obviously that hasn't happened uh it it hasn't happened for a couple of reasons one is the, the resilience of the ukrainian people but 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 also its army uh, has really done a pretty good job, uh, Two is that the fact that the, the Russian the Russians may have been overconfident in how easy this was going to be. Um, you know, in, in my military career, the, the, the hardest kind of warfare there is is, is urban warfare, mm-hmm. you know, going building to building. If you're going to try to take a city against a determined enemy, you know. The, You need at least three times three times the force, and in many cases more than that. So, but I think you know uh, our military is watching the performance of the of the Russian military, and it's obvious, you know, at least initially that there there isn't great cohesion between the land forces and the air forces, and the supply chains uh, are are not uh, consistent. Um, And and I think really. Um you know, in my time in NATO, working when, when we were on better terms with the Russians that you know they've never really graduated to this uh, Western uh, capability of uh, combined arms, uh, jointness, uh, things like that. They don't have an NCO Corps that uh, is vested with any great deal of responsibility like we have, so it's interesting to watch this uh, this unfold. Um, it's clear that the uh, the tanks, uh, their their reliance on mechanized forces requires an awful lot of maintenance, an awful lot of uh, supply, fuels, things like that, ammunition. Um, so it's not it has not gone the way they thought it was going to go, and I think time will. and and careful analysis will reveal some uh, some gaping flaws in the in their capabilities.
0: Biden is uh, supposed to talk to Xi Jinping later today, I believe. How key to this is China? And do you think China is watching this? And and, you know, what is their thinking? Is this changing maybe China's own calculus about how easy it would be to have a military action against, say, Taiwan or, or, other things they might, you know, be in the right. back of their, their potential <laughs> ideal outcome. Robbie, I um, think
1: there's no question. He's what they're watching this very closely. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think what's really important at, at the end of, at the end of this, uh, this conflict is, uh, whether, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Retains any kind of acceptance in any world form, uh, you know. Frankly, uh, his attack against civilians moves him into the category of war criminals. Being a war criminal, and uh, it will be very important that um, that the rest of the world, as I said, once this is resolved one way or the other, that the rest of the world. Uh, make sure that Vladimir Putin never, never again is uh, a part of the uh, kind of the leadership of uh, that is and recognized as, as a leader that can sit at the table of the family of nations, and and that would that would be something that uh, President Xi should consider very carefully. And I think that's what he's watching. Um, what what is the reaction of the world? What is the impact of the sanctions and the, and the penalties? And how does Vladimir Putin come out of this at the end of the day in terms of you know, whether he's an accepted leader at the, in, within the family of nations? And so there's a lot at stake here, um, not only what's going on today, but as we get closer to uh, a resolution, you know what happens to him after that is, it will be important to watch.
0: The Biden administration has been very clear that we're going to do sanctions, we're going to send help, but we are not going to do a no-fly zone because that would bring us you know, to the brink of World War III, invite potential nuclear retaliation. Not going to do it. They have been crystal clear on that. Most members of Congress of both parties are also in agreement on that. Really the most vocal contingent I can tell that are in favor of the no-fly zone is like the White House press corps who asked Gensaki like 150 times the other day, why can't we just do no-fly zone? Why can't we just do no-fly zone? Do you think that, uh, is, is Biden just, you know, completely calm about this? It's off the table, not going to be influenced at the, in that direction? Or does this, or, or you know, the kind of demanding of it, the sort of Ukraine fever is there a temptation to, to go closer to, in that direction?
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, my, my personal view is that uh, I don't know how you would do that to, you know, a, a, a no-fly zone over, over Ukraine uh, without being in Ukraine. I mean, without having bases, without having runways. Uh, and if you're going to enforce a no-fly zone from a NATO, uh, NATO country, on the borders of Ukraine, then you are, you are involving the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, I think. Um, <clears throat> one variation of that could be that because of the humanitarian catastrophe, that uh, you know, I think one of the problems that we've had is that we've spent so much time telling people what we won't do, that we've not spent a lot of time telling people what we will do. And what we can do, and one of the things that I and others like me think um, that is possible is, is a kind of a humanitarian corridor, which would imply a no-fly zone, but you could you you could uh, escort C-17s with humanitarian airlifts, escorted by by fighters that would protect the humanitarian airlift. We'd have to work this out with the Russians, of course. But um, the humanitarian aspect, I think, is, is one of the things that I think uh, might, might be possible to work. And in a sense, you have, you'd have to have a, 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 no, a no-fly zone in the sense of military uh, air-to-air combat um, for those, uh, for those uh, resupply uh, humanitarian missions, which I think need to be done and, and probably worth uh, exploring
0: Very interesting. Well, General James Jones, we're so happy to have you with us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: We'll be back with more Rising right after this.
2: On Tuesday, President Biden withdrew his nomination for the Federal Reserve's top bank regulator, Sarah Bloom Raskin. This comes as West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he would join Republicans and vote against her, most likely botching her chances at a confirmation.
0: In a statement released on Tuesday, the Biden White House said Sarah was subject to baseless attacks from industry and conservative interest groups. With us now to discuss is
3: host of the Bad Faith podcast and former Bernie Sanders press secretary, Brianna Joy Gray. Welcome, Brianna.
4: Thank
3: you, Ryan, and everybody. And so, this was an this was an interesting development because uh, Sarah, Sarah Bloom Raskin, by by everybody's account, former Deputy Treasury Secretary, is you know extraordinarily well well qualified. People call her the brains of the Raskin family. She's married to Representative Jamie Raskin, who people might remember as kind of one of the lead prosecutors from that January sixth impeachment trial. Uh, Yet the fight over the Federal Reserve came down to climate change, which you wouldn't necessarily expect to be the forum for that argument. So were you surprised that the Fed has become the kind of locus of this climate policy debate and that that was the thing that ended up tanking her nomination?
4: Well, it is interesting. There was the climate piece there and there was this also a uh, revolving door concern that she had in her, her private capacity because of her relationship with the Fed enabled there to be a relationship and contracts that she personally benefited from. But putting that to the side, I do think it's fascinating that these climate fights are being fought increasingly in unexpected places, which perhaps is a red flag to, uh, that warns us against how proximate the threat of real climate change that is irreversible is and how we really do need to start looking much more holistically at ways to combat it and perhaps the fear is that this was one of the battlegrounds where these battles to actually force um, financial institutions to be more conscious of the ways that their practices their lending practices etc encourage the growth of the fossil fuel industry this is one place that that battle could have been fought
3: right it's washington saying hey climate change stay in your lane And climate change being like, no, you know, we don't necessarily have a lane.
4: Especially with all of the conversation about gas prices being in the background, it might be the case, this is pure conjecture, it might be the case that people felt like this was a prime time to push back against someone like her because there's a certain degree of public energy behind, supportive of the idea of not doing anything that would further cause there to be Uh, rises in fuel prices. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that even people from Joe Manchin's great state of West Virginia are actually sensitive to climate concerns. Everybody wants to have a job. People who have multiple generations of their family in coal mining are obviously sensitive to that as well. But just because you have these financial, personal, economic concerns doesn't mean that the people who are most affected by climate change and most affected by kind of the environmental effects of dirty fuel aren't the very people who are mining it right and they have a, an enormous commitment when actually pulled uh, to actually having climate concerns and it is very it's deeply frustrating that you'd have someone like Joe Manchin that is singularly focusing on the one prong of it that perhaps benefits him personally but not the health and well-being on the long term of his constituents
0: so does this mean he essentially has he has veto power over the over the role they have to pick someone they have to go back to the drawing board find someone. Uh, who is personally acceptable to joe manchin i guess
4: well what's fascinating what's fascinating robbie about this whole year plus that we've been in this uh biden administration is that literally any senator has this power any of them could be bernie sanders holding stuff up progressive for progressive reasons it could be any number of other centrist conservative corporate Democrats holding things up, but somehow it only is ever Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, which is why so many people on the left kind of poo-poo the idea that they're just uh, recalcitrant, uh, hot-headed, difficult people who just can't be understood or wrestled with, but they are in fact vessels for the broader ideology of the at least corporate wing, the predominant wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and of course the same is true in the House where a small number of progressives could have done the same. It is frustrating, that people seem to be treating Joe Manchin as he has as though he has magic powers as opposed to he is one in a in a 50 in a, in a narrow 50 person majority with a Kamala Harris tiebreaker. It is what it is.
2: Yeah, I'm curious, Branda, how much you think that is planned or Joe Manchin is just really believing what he's I mean, I mean so many of us think, oh, come on. I mean, you, you know, this is just this is planned out because They want to have the platform. They want to push for certain policies, you know, in order to be in good favor with the constituents, with the voting base and the progressives, right? But then ultimately they don't really want to push forward with certain policies because that would hurt their donors. And so maybe the best way to do it is to, you know, propose these ideas, propose these policies and then make sure that there's somebody who's going to spoil it. And Joe Manchin just seems to be that guy. Because to your point, it could be anybody, but it's never anybody. It's just Joe Manchin. I mean, with Kirsten Cinema, but, you know, it's these two all the time. Joe Manchin in particular. So it just feels almost, at this point, staged.
4: Yeah, you know, Kim, I wasn't born a cynic. I was born to two sunny-faced Howard grads right here in Washington, D.C. with the whole world ahead of them. But somehow, (laughs) this experience... I mean, it's hard not to come to this conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard not to come to this conclusion. I don't know how else to think about it. It just happens to be, it just happens to be that these two or one pop up and wreak havoc all over the place, but it doesn't occur to anybody else. Look, even if you think, Joe Manchin wants attention. Joe Manchin wants to do a stunt. Why isn't there anybody else in all of the Senate who seems similarly motivated to draw media attention in this way? There's not a single other person who maybe is facing a difficult election, who wants to extract some concessions from... uh, congressional leadership, um, who has maybe something genuinely going wrong with their constituents in the state and is trying to exert money to legitimately help the people that they are responsible for. It's only Joe Manchin. It's only West Virginia. You know, they call this a rotating villain theory. And it is not just something that has popped its head up this Year This past year or so, I mean, there are people who are who argue repeatedly that even when Obama had supermajorities, of course, we didn't get the public o- option because lo and behold, um, you know, there's always a spoiler. There's always a spoiler. And it becomes frustrating because we get in these conversations on the left about, well, if we just elect a few more progressives, if we just elect a few more Democrats, if we just give a little bit more to these act blue accounts, everything's going to change. And I think that you would have a better time convincing people to keep doing the same thing over and over again without it being insanity if just occasionally, occasionally there were a result.
3: Yeah, and I think that's why the American Rescue Plan from February, where Biden proposed, you know, $1.9 trillion, and Susan Collins came back and said, you how about we do $500 billion? Mm-hmm. and then she thought that, that they were going to embark on some six-month you know, foot-dragging negotiation that would result in either nothing or something close to $500 billion. And Biden was like, no, actually, we're going to do this with 50 votes and we're going to do not $1.9 trillion. And his approval rating was as high as it has ever been. And it was a signal that that kind of thing actually can work. I, the the idea of, like, throwing out really popular policies and then failing to implement them, uh, It does not work like that. That has caused their approval rating to plummet, which is why I'm skeptical that it's like a plan from Biden because it doesn't benefit Biden. It makes him look like a feckless loser.
4: Okay. (laughs) look, here's the thing here. I don't I don't know anything. I am not behind the scenes on the Hill. So I defer to you, Ryan. I saw you doing that great job in the White House press meeting the other day, by the way. But well, here, here, here's, what we're, here's what was before us. There are a whole list of executive orders that you and I both know that Joe Biden could mm-hmm. implement. Da- da- David Dan over at the American Prospect has a whole list of them. But front and foremost, in my mind, is uh, canceling student debt, which there has been bubbling hubbub about. Uh, Ron Klain, after the State of the Union went on a... Went on a, a Twitter spaces and, you know, hinting, he's been hinting here and there that there's something in the pike. There's something happening. Maybe, maybe we'll get a meager 10,000 or so. Maybe we're just going to keep getting it extended, which frankly would be better than getting the $10,000 cancellation and having to keep on since so many people have so much more than that. The average student debt burden is $30,000. I believe it might be higher Mm -hmm. at this point, you know, and he won't do that. So if we're talking about, wow, this doesn't make sense for it to be a Biden plan because this hurts him. Biden is no stranger to doing things that would hurt him. I recently saw, hey, look, Ryan, wait, first of all, I don't even know why I'm complaining because we have we have daylight savings could be permanent now,
0: <laughs> you know, oh.
4: or we get rid of them, whatever way that's, you want to that's frame it.
0: That's my right. radar subject for the day. I have never been happier ever in my lifetime. This is the first time in my life ever Robbie's, Robbie's the Senate it. has yeah. unanimously done something that I support. So well, look, Rob, I'm I'm, talk- I'm satisfied. I'm a I'm a Biden bro now. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's got to sign this thing. But that's that's counterfact- Biden vetoing? It would be I'm hilarious. hilarious.
4: Uh, what Biden vetoing it would
3: be hilarious. Yeah.
4: I'll, I'll tell you what. I went over to I was scrolling on on Instagram and I went to a popular kind of a black young pop culture site called the Shade Room, and the comments under the the post about daylight saving time, every single person. Almost you know, 80% of the comments were, oh, my God, does he think we're stupid? Is he ever going to do anything important? Is he going to cancel my student debt? Where's mm. my Stimmy?" People are still talking about them Stimmy checks, stimulus checks, that they I, were promised that yeah, never came through. This
2: is just an easy win, right? Oh, daylight savings.
0: But <laughs> our moods will be, anyway, I'm saving it for the radar. But yeah. <laughs> Brianna, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Of course.
2: Well, United Airlines is finally permitting some of its employees who defied the company's vaccine mandate to return to work this month, sort of. Last year, 2,200 United workers who received medical or religious exemptions were put on unpaid leave or moved to non-customer-facing roles. And those are the employees who are going to be coming back to their regular roles. But some other 200 employees who were fired for refusing to comply with the mandate who did not receive an exemption are not going to be asked back.
3: Meanwhile, the Pentagon has asked the Supreme Court for permission to stop the deployment of unvaccinated Navy SEALs. In January, a federal judge suspended the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for
0: SEALs, and the decision was upheld by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Joining us now to discuss renewed rumors is Julia Manchester, political reporter for The Hill, and Emily Jasinski, culture editor at The Federalist. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thank you. So, Emily, it feels like A lot of the, you know, the vaccine mandates and other things are now falling by the wayside that we're finally getting to a place where there is broad social acceptance. I think even in Team Blue circles that COVID is that we're kind of done with COVID. Is it going to be like it never happened, like they never, you know, tried to require everyone at every level as much as they could vaccines and other things? Are we just going to kind of like, you know, memory wipe that from the collective (laughs) imagination?
5: Yeah, no, we absolutely are. Whether that's successful is a different question. They have been trying to do this. We've seen Randy Weingarten, for instance, try to do this intensely. It is it is very, very intentionally a revisionist history effort. It's political, and they will be helped by the media. Now, that may not uh, mean that it'll be a successful effort because I think this is pretty deeply ingrained in the memories of a whole lot of voters and a whole lot of people in general. Um, so I don't think that they'll necessarily get away with it, but they will have the help of the media um, in sort of smoothing out their own record because they are now being sort of the reasonable actors and and you know letting the the COVID emergency measures sort of melt away. They they can say that they were leaders in in restoring normalcy. Um, but I, I think a whole lot of people, if not most people, um, are not going to forget. I feel like this was a political awakening actually for a lot, a lot, a lot of people who suddenly started paying attention to what was happening um, even on the local level. So. I I don't know how successful they'll be actually at uh, getting away with them.
2: You know what's interesting about this, um, the United story and them saying that they're going to accept back the employees, the over 2,000 employees who actually received the religious or the, uh, or the uh, medical exemption versus the, those who didn't, is that, you know, with these exemptions, they're on a case-by-case basis. You know, it's, it's like if you're lucky, then the person who reviewed your papers D- decided yes or no. It's so arbitrary for so many people. The people that I know that received them, even from the airlines, it was just totally arbitrary. And so for people to have lost their jobs and then and then they're not going to be able to get them back, uh, it, you know, it just feels. It, you know, I, I always thought it was wrong from the beginning. So, but this part feels extra bizarre. Uh, do you think, Julia, that there's going to be more companies who say, okay, we're going to start bringing back these people who were fired? I mean, we do have. We need we need employees. We need people to be in these industries. We have a lack of many, many industries like nursing, for example. A lot of nurses and doctors were fired even after having natural immunity. And but they still weren't willing to get the vaccine. Uh, Do you think that there is going to be more of this rehiring or bringing people back?
6: yeah absolutely i think a lot of companies are learning or at least looking at the companies that are now uh, taking a lot of the unvaccinated employees back or learning that it wasn't sustainable to get rid of them in the long term um you know i think the Biden administration, as well as a lot of corporations who were very pro-vaccine, pushing the vaccine, while the vaccine has been, you know, fantastic for a lot of people, I think they underestimated um, how many, how much pushback there would be from some pockets of the population uh, against getting the vaccine. They didn't realize that it would be this big in numbers. So I think they're realizing that it's simply not sustainable uh, to require people to get these vaccines in the long term uh, when it comes to the coronavirus, Um, you know, I think there's the question as to, you know, what sort of precedence does it set, you know, for other organizations or institutions like universities, for example, where, you know, to go to college or most colleges in the United States, you have to get, you know, a tetanus shot, for example. Um, So I I think, you know, for companies though, and, you know, the administration right now for the government, it just wasn't sustainable or it doesn't uh, appear that it was sustainable.
3: And Emily, I'm I'm glad that United is going to take these workers back. I think they ought to take all of them back at this point. But the military one is kind of strange to me. So the Marines are asking for permission to be able to give a, an order to people in their unit. It's like, that's what the military is. Right. I mean, they, they get shot up with all kinds of crazy vaccines that you've never even heard of. And by the way, central to being in the military is getting ordered to do things that you know, could get you killed. Like that. That's that's part of what's going on here. I don't. I'm not saying that I love that about the military, but that's what the military is. So, what, so at what other orders are the Marines going to have to ask the Supreme Court for permission before they can give them out?
5: It's it's interesting because I do wonder, and I was thinking this even with the airline question. Um, without the mandates, how much of this would have existed. So like if people didn't feel like the the government in many cases and big business was forcing them to get vaccinated and in the case of the Marines, again, this is an emergency use authorization for the vaccine um, and it is very new. And so for the mandates, I think that's what's so, I'm not saying this, like I'm just saying, I think this is the argument. I think that really sowed a lot of distrust in people, the fact that something so new was being so forcefully implemented via mandates. And I do think that was the seed of distrust and skepticism um, that really prevented a lot of people from getting vaccinated. And so I actually wonder how differently a lot of this would have played out if there were, I I guess, maybe um, a more reasonable Mm -hmm. strategy of getting people to take it, which was that like, hey, this will probably be good for your health. We're not going to jam it down your throat and we're not going to jab you with the needle forcibly um, to make you keep your job. Because I think that was just a lot of people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, (laughs) why would you be forcing me to take this? And I can see that being a huge uh, factor in the military particularly.
0: Yeah, I I think there are two things. I agree with you, Emily. And I think there's two elements of the the vaccination strategy that really um, undermined that. Uh, The first was... Uh, going when the government went back on saying, you know, first it was you get the vaccine and then you don't have to do any of the other stuff. We just want you to get the vaccine. Then they went back on that. No, we actually want you to mask and social distance and everything. And also not recognizing natural immunity or immunity acquired from infection, not recognizing, as we now understand from the science, that you you do have a pretty robust protection akin to the vaccine. Some people think it's better. Some people think it's not quite as good, but it's pretty good. And not recognizing that, well, maybe we don't need to, if we're going to require people to get vaccinated, well, we don't need to require them if they can show they have antibodies. And, and that really would have helped, I think, sell some of these policies, but they, they shot themselves in the foot. I don't know. What do you think, Julia?
6: there was definitely a lot of mixed messaging here and I think it was very confusing for the public at first you know like you said you get the vaccine do I still need to wear a mask in public places even going into individual businesses I think there was frustration and maybe still is uh, sometimes like when someone goes into a restaurant for example there isn't a mask mandate in a city and then a restaurant is asking you to put on a mask though that is absolutely an individual business's uh, right but yeah I think the mixed message from corporations as well as the government. And I would definitely specifically point to the government on this led to a lot of frustrations. I think last year in 2021, we saw that once shots started going into arms in April and May, uh, there was a sense of reopening. Um, and that we weren't going to go back, and then of course that all you, you know that was dampened with Delta later that fall, late summer, and then of course with Omicron in November. So I think the mixed messaging, uh, coupled with the fatigue, is just leading to frustration among the public, and I don't really know how much more tolerance they have for this.
2: Well, and also if you're going to use a different strategy, you know, by saying, well, we could, uh, you know, we encourage you to get it because of this, that, and the other, you have to actually mean that. Rather than like Canada, where they said, Well, we tried that and you still didn't comply. You know, you didn't do what we really wanted you to do. And so now we're actually going to force you into it. So I think you have to mean it if you're going to go that strategy. Regarding the military, I just wanted to mention, um, you know, the, the problem with the, you know, a lot of people criticize like the military and the, and the Navy SEALs and whatnot, and say, well, you're required because, like Ryan mentioned, they're pumped full of all this other stuff anyway, and they're kind of giving their bodies to so the government and might end up losing their lives in war. But the problem with that is, and you know, and I understand the argument completely, but the problem is is that the military oftentimes recruits people who are poor, and they don't feel like they have other options in life. And so they're taking this opportunity to get a government job, essentially, to have some stability, and maybe to, to gain access to an education through um, the GI Bill. And and so you know they're already giving up a lot. Maybe even they don't really want to, but they're kind oh, yeah. of being forced I'm, I'm, to do I'm that. yeah, I'm with
3: I'm with all of that. Yeah. But I think it mean if, if, if you agree with that, then you've got to you've got to radically reevaluate the entire military, which well, I'm right. a thousand percent for. Right. right. So, right.
2: but one final question I want to ask: now that the now Pfizer has said you're going to need four doses of the vaccine, um, one area where they are still mandating these vaccines are in college campuses. Do you think that College kids who are low risk for serious COVID side effects, uh, or you know, serious COVID outcomes, because many of them are so young. Do you think that colleges are going to be requiring that fourth dose moving forward, mandating it even um, on an individual level? What do you what do you think, Emily? We'll start with you.
5: No, yeah, I, I think no. Um, I, I think it's already amazing that they continue to to mandate the vaccine, but I feel like what happened over the last several months was that that fourth dose and the third dose became the sticking point for people who said we're looking at the numbers the numbers are very very low and here you've told us dose one and two would suffice and then the booster comes along and then you're suggesting maybe a fourth booster I think what happened over the last several months was just the they were testing the waters and the waters were not warm uh people people were like this is just absurd and ridiculous and so I, I I don't see any um, major institutions, at least holding on to that level of, um, a, a, a fourth, a mandate for a fourth booster. Um, and I actually think it's really interesting cause that was sort of the sticking point. Um, I, as I see it at least. Julia, do you agree?
6: Yeah, I don't know about the third or fourth shot. Um, you know, we'll have to see. But I think definitely a first shot or a second shot being vaccinated. You know, I think colleges and universities in the United States have a history of that. I think we could definitely see one of those initial shots being mandated really throughout educational institutions.
0: Yeah. Well, Julia, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thanks you guys. Love- Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema has proven to be a thorn in President Biden's side, thwarting what could have been major legislative accomplishments, along with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, of course. But new revelations show Biden confessed he didn't understand Sinema's ongoing pushback. Here to discuss this latest scoop
2: disclosed in the upcoming book by New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. This will not pass. Our panelists, co-host of gen, a generational change on YouTube, Jen Perlman and Republican strategist Malik Abdul are here with us to discuss. Thanks so much for joining the show. So I I hey listen, I also don't understand Kirsten Cinema's pushback. I don't know if anybody does. Jen, what is your take on it? Why do you think Kirsten Cinema just continues to be a roadblock with no real explanation?
7: You know, it's funny. I kind of view a lot of it as political theater. To me, it's very akin to like when I was young, the World Wrestling Federation. So to me, her and Manchin are the allocated bad guys. Those are the baddies. Um, and I and I also think that she just doesn't care. I don't think she cares if she gets reelected. I think she is most likely going to end up in that revolving door of lobbyist politics and is just looking for a corporate payoff. So I don't think she cares either way. But, you know, I, I also think that she is not the real problem either. I think that it's just easy to name somebody as the bad guy.
0: Yeah, what do you think, Malik? I, I, see, I seem to think that I think cinema in particular has come to really dislike the left almost on a personal level and enjoys thwarting them for personal reasons that I actually find somewhat amusing a lot of the time. What do you think?
8: Yeah, so I'm not really sure if it's personal reasons. Um, So there's one thing. um, Typically, when you have a president in office, you will have what many people consider maverick. Now, of course, those people who consider them mavericks typically agree with whatever it is that they're doing at that time. When Donald Trump was in office, that maverick was John McCain. And so you had a lot of people on the left praising John McCain. And in this case, you have both Cinema and Manchin. One of the things that I, that kind of bothers me about the discussion about um, the cinema is that much of the ire and angst is really focused in, in cinema and not so much mansion the person who was following followed in bathrooms and you know on airplanes and things like that that was Kirsten cinema Why her and not Joe Manchin? I would say a little sexism is involved in that, but I really don't know. But that Mavericks exist in either side is not something that's really surprising at all.
2: Maybe it's because Manchin's hiding on his yacht all the time. <laughs> so he's got fancy things to go hide inside of. And maybe Kristen Sinema is just more out on the, on the street in
3: public. Well, I mean, but there's also the material reason of, you know, Manchin represents a state that Trump won by... 30 points. Uh, you know, the left ran, Paula Jean swearing in there, in 20, what, 2020 or so, and she got beaten by like 30 points. Whereas Sinema is just one of two Arizona senators. Mark Kelly is a Democratic senator. He's, he's fine with the Biden agenda. And so you, I think that helps people see like, wait, you're from Arizona, you, and you used to be in the Green Party. Like you could, you could vote for this stuff. Um, but Robbie, there's another scoop in there that you'll like. That is Kirsten Sinema. And, Jen, I'm curious for your take on this. Uh, Kirsten Cinema refused to wear a mask around Biden uh, in 2021. Weird. Good. She was like, I'm vaccinated.
0: Get out of here wow, with that's this. That's weird. She's just. Like, uh, what are you
3: doing? And she she fought all these White House aides.
0: All right, new idea. She is trying. She's desperate to earn my vote. Personally, <laughs> <Yeah>. she's <laughs> thwarting all of this big government spending. She's over COVID. She's uh, she's really going for the Robbie vote, and she's going to get it. And she'd wind up with four percent. Yeah, as a result, it's not a great so electoral it, strategy, it's, it's strategy. It's actually where but, she's uh, headed. Yes. Yeah.
3: Jen, Jen. Wh- I mean, what, Jen? What's your uh, reasoning, wh- and what's your take for why it is that uh, you know? cinema gets as much ire as she does I, given Manchin's you mean more than mansion
7: i well i mean she doesn't have the establishment roots that mansion has i mean he's like what third generation coal owner his family mm-hmm. basically owns west virginia i mean he's just so much more established She's only been sitting there this term. She doesn't really have any roots there. And I think that she enjoys playing. I think she enjoys the spectacle of it all. You know, when she walks into the floor to do a vote and does some sort of little thumbs down dance, that's a sign of someone who's into theater. Um, This is not someone who is wanting to actually represent her constituents. And from my understanding, she doesn't. From my understanding, Arizonans are not happy with her, which is why I think she's not concerned with reelection. That doesn't seem to be something that she's concerned with. But I think she's having fun with it. I think that, you know, maybe there's a slight bit of psychopathy with her. I don't know. But (laughs) she definitely enjoys being the bad guy.
2: It's really bizarre. I mean, it's definitely really. But I I actually agree with you, Jen. I think that she's there to be a foil in some way. Her her Ann mansion. I think that whoever Biden might be confused as to what's going on, because I I think I'm not sure how in the loop Biden is on a lot of the stuff that's going on, but Um, But it seems like maybe the powers that be, whoever is really behind the scenes running things, especially in Congress, definitely designated those two and said, "Okay, we're going to try to, you know, we need to make people happy by putting out there all these kind of far left ideas. And you two are the ones that are going to make sure that it halts every single time. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really with you on that, Malik. Is there anybody on the right that does that? That you, you know, I mean, we talk about Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, but from your perspective on the other side of the aisle, is there anyone who operates in the same way?
8: You mean now? <laughs> of course, the, we, we can actually say that that person is Mitt Romney um, mm-hmm. and Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, Cheney, and Adam Kinzinger. You know, a lot of them are. The left loves them now. Now, the Cheney brand has always been a, a pretty bad brand in left poli- leftist politics, but they love Liz Cheney now. So of course that there are comparisons to be made to people on the left. Um, on the right, just as it is on the left. That's why I say that this is something that pretty much happens in every administration. But I think it's something that we should also be mindful of. What we're talking about with cinema and mansion is that they really were against. The um, the human infrastructure turn build back better plan and maybe one or two of the other maybe the voting rights legislation. It's not as if they haven't voted in lockstep with the Democratic Party on almost every single issue. But around voting rights and the build back better plan, they have been considered as you if you will mavericks. But it's not as if they haven't voted in lockstep. With the Democratic Party at, at all, and I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind, even as we're criticizing them, right, justly or not, we need to keep in mind that they vote in lockstep with the Democratic Party.
2: You make good points because I mean, here's Robbie sitting there saying he likes Kirsten Cinema.
3: Well, <laughs> they, they killed the Build Back Better and Voting Rights and Filibuster Reform, right. so yeah, so you know, we wound up with a kind of Democratic Party that Joe Manchin's okay with, and Robbie, Which, and and about yeah, thir- yeah. and about thirty percent of the country. <laughs> Yeah, roughly, anyway, uh, Jan Malik, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having us. There's a coronavirus surge happening right now in Western Europe that has U.S. health officials on the alert, since what happens in the region is usually a precursor to what we can expect state side in terms of the pandemic.
2: So, roughly a dozen countries, including Germany, the Netherlands, and the UK, are seeing spikes in cases caused by the BA2 variant, a more contagious cousin of the already transmissible Omicron.
0: We covered earlier this week how China is experiencing a severe spike, but their zero COVID policies make it harder to compare between Western Europe and the US. I don't care. We should <laughs> not do anything about this. Just, like what? Just let it rip. Yeah, people are going to get sick, just like people always get sick. And you should be vaccinated. Uh, It should be your choice, but I would urge you to be vaccinated. And if you are vaccinated or boosted or whatever, the appropriate thing for you to do is, this will probably be a mild illness, just like any other for you. It it will, of course, be uh, tragic that some people will have a a worse go of this, just like they might have had a worse go, again, with any other contagious disease. But We're not going back to
3: yeah. I was going to say what we what we could try what we could try this time is a public health approach that provides all of the information that people need, and then and then urge the public to take the best precautions they that they feel are right for themselves, and see how that goes.
2: Do you know what that sounds like? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: That sounds like the demonized Swedish approach. (laughs)
3: <laughs> what, was the, what was the Swedish approach? It was that. It like, was, here's all the information. Yeah. Please be responsible.
2: Yeah. And well, they, they took a few more measures. They did shelter their elderly. They tried that. It didn't work. Unfortunately, the nursing home still got infected as much as they tried. But they did try to at least isolate some of the more uh, vulnerable people. But otherwise, they said, here's the way you can take some precautions. You can socially distance. You can wear masks. You can um, work from home if you can. They did those types of things. But otherwise, they said it's up to you to live your life. Now, this variant did spread throughout Denmark, and that was where it was first identified. Um, They had the Omicron, and then they ended up with this variant of it, and maybe it mutated there. We don't know, right? But it seems like it may have because it spread through that country first. And they didn't find that it actually did anything too terrible to the country. So they they actually just continued to stay open, even with right. this one going through. And now it's gone through a lot of the Scandinavian countries. It's now moving its way through Europe, but they're not finding it to be, right. you know, because it's more continuous. Well, we know what we're going to expect. Right. We're going to
0: have an uptick right. in cases, but we're not going to have, we're probably not going to see a dramatic or worrisome increase in Hospitalizations and deaths certainly right. not among the, the vaccinated. I mean, you you know you can every time one of these things comes through, you do pick up you you pick off a couple more of the of the elderly and of the unvaccinated, which is very bad. I and I again, people who, who are in risk categories who are not vaccinated, I urge you to do so. But the rest of us cannot. We cannot have to remask every time there's a slight uptick in cases. Yeah, they and they didn't more, really.
2: They actually you know. saw their cases. Go, I mean, things the cases went up, but then deaths and hospitalizations were going down with this new variant. So right. this. Is where we're i think we are seeing it mutate more and more hopefully fingers crossed right. it mutates considerably to a less harmful more like the a cold where people aren't as infected. even if they're older they it's right. hopefully becomes yeah. more and more mild for even i mean obviously there are some categories of people that even the common cold will take them out because they are very very vulnerable but sure. hopefully COVID is continuing I mean, to the united evolve states into so
0: that. many people have both vaccine uh, induced protection and protection from a prior infection right maybe multiple prior right. infections right I mean we have a we have a large level of just protection in our not enough right. for herd immunity because herd immunity is impossible, but enough to really keep it from having a lot of severe outcomes but
2: we're still gonna get it i mean uh, you know i i I think i i don't i mean i don't know but waiting zero
0: COVID is a fantasy right
2: and i just think you know even if you've had it before you're i'm always waiting when am i going to get it again you know i I test myself all the time more just because i want to know when it will i catch it again because i had it very 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 early on in the pandemic Um, but i've been since around a lot of people with COVID and have not caught it again yet but at some point, I anticipate, like maybe it lasts three years, and then it's like the flu right. every and, three years. And hope,
3: hopefully, it does continue to mutate down to a less. What, what do they call it? Less severe. Yeah, where it's like the sniffles, so that, so that when right. let's say you do eventually get it, when you get it, that it that it's mostly harmless. right? Like, we wish we could just goal. work
0: out this agreement with the virus. Like, Why well, won't the virus come to the table and be like, be as transmissible as right. you want and with just like zero uh, hospitalization or, or serious illness or, or and, even negative impacts at all, we'll spread it. If and it's, that, is,
3: that is the agreement that we generally work toward with yeah. the virus. And it, yeah. it it had me thinking the other day that that actually does show that social distancing does work. Mm-hmm. And it shows it in this way. The reason that viruses mutate down to a less powerful strength, but more contagious strength, is that when they are too powerful, there's two things that happen. One, it kills the host too quickly. Right. And then the host doesn't have time to pass it off. And so then the virus dies. But that's not the key thing. The, The key thing is that if it gets people too sick, then people just naturally stay away from that person. And that person stays away from other people. Right. And that's the other word for that is social distance, right. and so a, a virus, quote unquote, knows that if it's too powerful, it will produce social distancing in in humanity, which is a which is a social creature, and so that's why it it uh, the variants tend toward you know less less fatality and less less. Well, power. that's what
2: we're seeing, and that's what I hope you know we yeah. continue to see it uh, continue to you never
3: know, it could be some freak mutation, but that's the
2: push, right? right. But the good news is for you, Robbie, in particular, and me, because, you know, I hate the mandates too, but I know you really hate the masking and stuff. But in Europe, even though this is spreading really fast throughout these countries, Countries like France, which actually has been very authoritarian in their measures, have now dropped all. There are like no masking, no vaccine passports and vaccinated go everywhere. They don't you know, they're like, OK, back to normal, even with this spreading. So it must not be showing in the numbers. And I haven't really looked at those numbers as much lately, but um, it must be showing in the numbers that it's just not as dangerous. People just aren't getting hospitalized. And. So that's good news. Right. Maybe, so then,
3: Hospital is capacity is key. right? Yeah. So Because
2: what happens to them happens to us. So if they're not doing it, maybe we won't do it.
3: And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expressed her frustration with Democrats who supported the removal of pandemic support from the $1.5 trillion spending bill signed by President Biden this week. Quote, I am really heated up about this. She said she was particularly actually going after Democrats who she has put on good committees and then who used a rule vote on the House floor to, to pull some of this money out. Because it really... Is their last was their last shot at getting pandemic money through? Yeah, the they pandemic providing cover
0: in. to approve the spending they want to approve. Well, well it's pandemic yeah. spending, but
2: what right. was it for? Yeah. I wonder.
3: It's for it's for uh, the therapies, okay, Paxlovid and all those. Uh, it's for the free testing, and it's for uh, free treatment for uninsured people, and so these the and, and for the vaccines, and so the free vaccines, the free testing, all like all of that stuff yeah. is going to be gone.
2: Yeah, see, oh, well, I, yeah. No, oh, well. I, I actually think they should keep mm-hmm. that. I mean, I, you know, that's, <laughs> I, because look, if we do want to move to a society where we say, do what you want to do, like, here's the information, do what you can, if here's
3: the ability to do, right. Then you have to give them the do. ability
2: to, you have to give, I mean, I'm, I think we should have N95 masks that are provided for us if we want them, because some of us have elderly grandparents, we go around and. I, you know, I know my grandmother wouldn't want me wearing a mask anymore because she's like, get that off your face. I want to see your face. Right. But still, it should be an option. Testing, well, absolutely. An option. It's an option. Doesn't you have buy it you not to buy You have to buy it. I can't, I can't even up find to... one up, up right. until finally a couple month, months, you know, one month ago. And it's like same with tests. Finally, now I walk into a CVS. I see tons of tests. I'm like, I, this is these have been difficult to get a hold yeah, of this entire of pandemic.
0: Well, th- those were difficult to get a hold of because the government forbid people to make them.
2: Yeah, so there was, mean, was a lot so, of
0: see, there was a bottleneck for some of these things because they were so tightly you know, restricted. But
2: the reality is there's a lot of people who are still very afraid. They're you know, they're they're scared. They don't want to go back to living their life as normal. Maybe you and I are ready, but they're not quite ready. And so yeah. they should have tests available to them. They should have masks available to them and certainly therapies because vaccinated or not, People are getting COVID. I guess and if you not, go to the doctor, I'm, you should be given something to calm you down. I do want to subsidize you antisocial
3: to help behavior. You
0: win. I mean, <laughs> I'm it. not going to subsidize well, pro-social it. behavior if it protects society, right? Yeah. People need to get out into society. It's fine. You should be able to protect themselves. Put your sick. toes in. The water's fine. If right. You're sick, and you should have an home. N95 mask if you're, sick, if you're sneezing home. and
2: sniffling and snotty. Well, you should just stay home.
0: But yes, well, you but should not wear a mask if you have to go. stay home. Yeah. If you're sick if you're sick. That is the one change. Well, then
2: we should have money for the sick pay.
0: Robbie's like, I'm gonna wrap this up right (laughs) now. We'll have more rising after this.
2: Shortly after COVID-19 broke out, federal student loan repayments were paused to provide Americans some relief. But after two years, more than 41 million borrowers are expected to see payments resume in May.
3: According to reports, however, the Biden administration is considering pumping the brakes on these repayments again. But borrower's sigh of relief might be short-lived if naysayers who oppose extending the moratorium have a say. Here to discuss how conservative coalitions are urging the administration to put an end to the moratorium is Isabel Morales, Policy and Communications Specialist at Americans for Tax Reform. Isabel, thank you for joining us.
9: Thank you for having me.
3: And so the the double negatives really start to pile up here, and it can be confusing, you know, who's on which side. And so what is it that the the major kind of conservative coalition is pushing for here today? Is, Is it for students to be forced to start paying their loans again quickly?
9: Yeah, I mean, the idea is that federal student loan repayments should begin again. The Biden administration should not extend this moratorium beyond May 1st. And that's because this policy has costed taxpayers $100 billion so far and continues to cost them an additional 4 to $5 billion each month that it's still in place. And first of all, it's unbelievable that the president alone can spend this amount of taxpayer money without further congressional approval, which really just reads as executive overreach. Also, this policy worsens our out of control inflation which most recently hit 7.9%, the highest it's been in 40 years. This policy is fundamentally unfair. It's a slap in the face to Americans who have already paid off their debts. Those who decided to work throughout their schooling, even Americans who joined the military to pay for their education. To make matters worse, the moratorium primarily benefits higher income Americans at the expense of low and middle income taxpayers. So, At this point, especially with Democrats starting to signal that they're ready to move on from strict COVID policy, there's absolutely no reason to keep this moratorium in place.
0: And and that last thing is uh, the unfairness of it is what motivates me the most, because I I am sympathetic to people who are, are very in debt, because they right. were kind of sold a bad deal about college. I think there was a lot of scamming going on in, in terms of how much money you should spend on this, how many years of your lives you should get a, give away. And I totally support you know, reforming the education system, trying to lower the actual cost. I would not subsidize student loans. I would not encourage this as a choice for, for everyone. I'd do all sorts of other things. But to say that right now, in this one moment in time, people who have not fully paid for this education, they should get some kind of forgiveness. Doesn't seem fair to me, right, to everyone who came before and everyone who will come after.
9: Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, this is more than just, I had to suffer so everyone else does too. Each person took on their debt or didn't with the expectation and promise that they would have to pay those loans back with interest. That was the contractual agreement by both loan recipients and the government. And based on that information, millions of Americans changed the course of their lives. They made decisions and compromises that still live with them today. And if the government continues the moratorium or goes even further and cancels student loan debt, they're not only rewarding those who made less frugal decisions, but they're also actively undermining Americans' confidence in their government's word.
2: So, Isabel, I, I come from a, a different perspective on this. I actually think student loan debt should be forgiven completely, but—because uh, I think it's beneficial for our country to be educated, and I think we should be encouraging education in order to compete on the global stage. I think it's a matter of national security, quite frankly. But. Is there a happy medium from your perspective? I get it. You don't like it. You don't want this to continue. But is there maybe a happy medium that we could agree on, like perhaps maybe just putting a moratorium at least on the interest? You know, a lot of people, what has happened is um, they go to medical school. They go to law school. We need doctors, right? I don't know. Maybe we could argue we don't need lawyers. I say that with having a lawyer at home. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, But certainly we need engineers. We need doctors. We need a lot of people that do have to go to these. Unfortunately, whether we like it or not, and I could agree with Robbie all day long, that maybe it's a, it's a big scam and people shouldn't be paying this much money for education. Cost is too high. But the cost is there. It's been done. People already have these loans. There's no going backwards in time and changing the, the price of education. So people would graduate from like medical school and they'd have $200,000 in debt. But the banks, I mean, can we all sit here and say that the banks are these great uh, benevolent organizations? They would then use that the the interest that was on those $200,000 loans, for example. By the time that person got a job out of residency and was able to start paying those loans, that $200,000 ballooned to $270,000. So now they're paying not the 200 they agreed to pay, but they're paying 200 plus 70,000 extra dollars to a bank. I mean, do we really think that's a good thing for America and that that's something we should be agreeing to? Or can we maybe say, let's forgive the interest?
9: Well, I mean, I think your point about banks, even if the government were to forgive all student loan debt, they'd only have the authority to forgive federal student loan debt. So, um, I don't know if we'd be getting the retribution on the banks that maybe they deserve or maybe not Um, and to your point you're right we can't go back the money has been spent the students have taken on those loans but what we do have to remember is that things can get worse college can get more expensive and it's a mistake to leave out of this conversation how we got into this predicament the primary reason why college is so expensive today is because the federal government subsidizes tuition so heavily. So even if we cancel all federally held student loan debt on the taxpayer's dimes, are schools going to stop charging tuition? Or are they yet again going to take advantage of an insane surge in federal spending on education and raise their prices even more for future generations? I'm just not sure that that's the answer.
3: I wanna pick up on your inflation point because I think it's really, really telling. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you walk people through, uh, because we talk about this a lot on the show, can you walk people through why it is that taking money out of people's pockets by having them start paying their student loans again does something about inflation?
9: Yeah, so one of the causes of inflation is when the government is flooding the economy with so much money through handouts or subsidies or payment pauses like we're discussing today that demand is growing too fast for production to keep up. I mean. It, of the U.S. dollars in circulation right now were printed in the last 22 months um, to keep up with this insane spending. So as a result, now we have 7.9% inflation, as I mentioned. And last year, the the average U.S. household spent $3,500 more due to inflation. And not only that, but inflation is eroding purchasing power, so wages are decreasing on average. I think the last BLS... Um, data that came out a couple days ago showed that average hourly earnings dropped by 2.4%. So right. these have real-world effects.
3: Right, and so I just want to underline that. The, the way that the way that Reaganomics and whatever you want to call it says that we ought to combat inflation is taking money away from people. So you get a paycheck, what's $700? They want to say, no, no, you need to take extra 200 of that and just burn it send it to the Department of Education, which doesn't, Department of Education, like the federal government prints money, doesn't, Department of Education doesn't need your $200. But the goal exactly is it takes your paycheck down from $700 down to $500. Then you can buy less stuff. And because you're miserated, prices go down more generally. And and that is the goal of this anti-inflation kind of faction of our Politics, so it's it's good that we're at least discussing it openly. Whether that's how people want want this to be organized? Yeah,
9: I mean, I think this is better described as um, spending than taking taxpayer money or taking people's money because these the government budgeted based on the expectation that this money would be coming in, and now that it's not, we're losing money. Four to five billion dollars every single month, and a hundred billion dollars so far. Although, although a lot of money.
3: Economist Economist Stephanie Kelton actually modeled this and found something interesting: that the economic growth that was created by people having more money to spend actually ended up with a net increase of seventy nine billion dollars in federal revenue by canceling the student debt. So it's not quite as simple as. Well, we'll take your money, and now we have more money. No, we took your money, and now you can't You can't go to the restaurant. And so, therefore, the restaurant's not doing as well. The restaurant can't pay taxes. The waiter can't pay taxes. The busser can't pay taxes. The Uber driver that took you to the restaurant can't pay taxes. And so, overall, you're actually worse off,
0: but... You did force people to live up to their but, contracts. And, and we, but when you say your money, it's not really their money. it's money. The and they money. borrowed right. from people and now are refusing to pay back. Well, they earned right. the money in their paycheck. Okay. On the premise that they would pay back this, the loan that they took out, the way any loan works. And this is one category of people who are saying, no, we refuse to do it even.
3: Although so many have already paid the principal back like they'll they'll take out $20,000 and by the end of it they've paid back 70 to Kim's
2: point. Yeah, and that's what I'm in the middle of right now. I took out 35, somehow 15 oh, years later 15 years would later do you do still do I, owe 32. I do it. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I feel tremendously sorry for people who well, got scammed. I, no, it's just not, like if you were here right, exactly. in I don't here. think it was
2: a scam. I think that my education was valuable. I mean, do I think I got overcharged? Sure, but I still think I should have gone to college. Yeah. I mean, not everybody needs to but go to college. You can go to
0: college without taking out
2: no, you, not re- I mean, it depends Some on your university can. and not, not yeah.
0: We can go to a community. Co- you, no, there are, there are educational options that are much cheaper. I did. They're I did two years good. of community
2: You're college. I transferred to university. I still, no one did paid my college. you end up going to
0: like eight different colleges? Hey, you know You're what, sure. Robbie?
3: What you can do is take a time machine to 1982 and then college is a lot more affordable. Yeah, exactly. So I if mean, you, and if you don't do that, you know, those are the choices you that you made. People
0: just skip the whole thing. Anyway, thank you so much for, for joining <laughs> us. We really appreciate thank it.
9: Thank you. Have a nice day.
2: Well, after the 2016 and 2020 elections, many lost faith in public opinion polls. The narrative out of those contests was that the polls got things really wrong. Now, while we've litigated that in depth here and determined that it was actually the forecasters who were off, the polls were fairly accurate when it came to the national numbers. You'd be forgiven if you were still skeptical.
0: A recent piece from The Intercept reveals how two major Democratic polling firms in particular have deep client ties in big business that directly presents massive conflicts of interest. It says, quote, because they work behind the scenes, pollsters have a unique ability to escape scrutiny in American politics. Some of these firms have exploited that immunity to cash in on a startling amount of well-paid work that is directly and immediately at odds with the goals of the clients whose missions they claim to share.
3: Journalism fellow at The Intercept, Alex
0: Weatherhead, joins us
3: now to expand on his reporting. Welcome, Alex. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And so you, you focused on two firms in, in your investigation here, but uh, it's actually, it goes, you know, as, as you note in the story, it goes kind of far, far beyond this. Uh, it's, it's typical for uh, Democratic polling firms, it turns out, to take corporate clients on the side. Now, one of them that you wrote about, you know, specifically does not do that, has has worked for some nonprofits that have that themselves sometimes operate as as fronts for major corpor- corporations, but that you know a, a bunch of them just straight up are doing work for Exxon. You know, not not a front group, just straight up you know Exxon. While then also advising right. Democrats about how they ought to message around climate change. So what what type of what type of conflicts did you find, and how do you see it kind of playing out
10: in the messaging that Democrats? Uh, come up with uh, that's, that's a great question and so a lot of the things that we saw uh through the investigation were uh partnerships between these polling firms uh global strategy group uh and lake research partners with um big pharma companies like um uh, you have partnerships with uh klein purdue pharma etc and and you have um these democratic politicians that also work with these companies who are then uh, going to make decisions about the future of of healthcare in the United States. And and obviously that's a big conflict of interest because what is good for these big pharmaceutical companies is not necessarily what's good for your average American.
3: And can you tell us a little bit about the the Andrew Cuomo
10: situation that you wrote about? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a specifically interesting case. Uh, you know, when Andrea Cuomo went uh, to the stage to give what I called the now infamous Italian defense uh, to the allegations that he had sexually harassed 11 women, uh, he had uh, his top aide was, you know, in in behind the stage and she was in direct contact with a team who had helped craft his response to this. And one of those members of that team was uh, Jeff Pollock, who is the uh, founder and, and president of Global Strategy Group. And he was in this group chat, urging, "Please, please, sound more contrite." Uh, you know, the the governor needs to sound more contrite. And it's just two years prior to that. Uh, Global Strategy Group, Jeff Pollock's company, had uh, issued, uh, had done polling with Times Up, the celebrity-led um, organization or nonprofit to uh, to combat sexual harassment and support the victims of sexual harassment. And this study that that they had put out was. On how politicians should be responding to either allegations of sexual harassment or it's on voters' opinions of politicians who have been credibly accused of sexual harassment. So he was pretty well um, plugged in and, and well prepared to give, uh, give feedback on the response. I mean, his, his company had written the book on it.
0: Is it that these firms are not being honest or maybe they're being deceptive? with the public about who funds them and who directs them because you know if they're if if, if they're if they're just kind of providing research, you know, to their to their clients, we might say okay, well, it's it's you know, there's we should take it with a grain of salt, I guess, but obviously that's something that's going to go on, but they they're purporting to be these kind of larger sort of messaging entities for for Democrats in general when they're specifically getting money from 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 groups that might be at odds with the policies of the Democrats,
10: is that the issue? I, I think the issue is is sort of twofold. Uh, one issue is obviously that they could be advising uh, their Democratic clientele uh, in the interests of their corporate clientele. You know, urging someone to push uh, push legislation that would. Um, be a net gain for the companies that they work for, the corporations that they work for, and not necessarily the American public. But the other issue that I see is how they are able to make a lot of money playing both sides of a lot of issues. Um, Global Strategy Group, who, who worked with uh, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, um, you know, she put forward an act to kind of hold big tech accountable and, and protect people's privacy. However, they also were working for Meta and who had just years prior, you know, settled with a, a lot of money in their role in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So either they're advising people to, to kind of compromise and, and fatten the wallets of some of their corporate clientele, or they're just happy making a lot of money playing both sides of the, of the issue.
0: Yeah, because I, I imagine they could, and they could play both sides in two ways. I, in the example you just gave, where uh, they, they might be you know giving uh, research to a political candidate to get them to do something to be favorable for a corporate right. candidate, or also they could give research to a Political candidate to do something hostile toward a corporate candidate, so then they can turn right. to the or to the corporate client and say, "You need us to help explain to you how to make your business more popular to protect it from this kind of legislation." Right? Yeah. And that absolutely happens. Like <laughs> that's I, incredible.
3: I, I know. I know lobbyists. What a great who scheme. Do, who do that? It's a mo- it's a mob scheme. Like yeah. Nice, uh, nice company racket, you got yeah. here. Yeah. Shame yeah. if something
0: happened to it's it. Same if Kirsten, be shame if Kirsten Gillibrand happened to
2: it. This sounds a lot like how clinical studies happen. You know, it's like big sugar funds a clinical study, and then this clinical study comes out and says, sugar's great for you, or it doesn't cause diabetes, or it doesn't have, you know, our study found XYZ thing. And it sounds to me, when we're talking about these polls and uh, how they're funded, it sounds a lot like clinical studies. And so one big question that people would have is, how do we know which polls to trust?
10: Uh, that's, that's a really great question. And I think it's just like most things, it's you gotta follow the money uh, to an extent. In, in my research, all of the, the sources that I cited uh, in, in the publication of this article are open source. Um, you can find all of this online. I didn't have to dig too deep on a lot of this stuff to kind of figure out uh, what was going on here. If you can find out who's conducting the polling and find out what other kind of partnerships they have then I think you can kind of get uh, the the gist of what they're what they're angling towards. Um, I, I've always said that if if you've got if you've ever um, Facebook stalked your ex to see what they're up two years later, you've got the tools to be an investigative journalist. And uh, so if, if you can do that, you can kind of figure out what these polls are, what their interests are.
3: Yeah, and, and Alex, just pulling from your story, you you, met, you also mentioned Green, Greenberg Quinlan Rosner, which does tons of polling for the DCCC, so they're setting kind of the messaging that all of right. House Democrats are are then running on, you know. And they you, they've their corporate clients: Monsanto, Verizon, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, and of course, DCCC is, you know, one of their one of their strongest arguments they make is don't talk about right. Medicare for all. Uh, you talk about heart. Heart Research Association another prominent democratic pollster. they work with pharma the pharma, you know, pharma school, that's like mm-hmm. big, literally big pharma uh, as well as Eli Lilly you mentioned SKDK you know huge firm that worked for uh, Joe Biden for instance right. um, you know has all sorts of uh, clients that can sometimes come in conflict with the with the democratic agenda and so if you're like a if you're a democratic candidate um, what would you you know how would you go about trying to get uh Advice from a, a pollster that is that is not tainted by this type of influence.
10: That's a very good question because I don't. I'm not sure how much of these um, these firms are not tainted by that influence. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't have a, a rolodex of all the the polling right. firms that are out there, but I, I would say one of the the. Things that we've heard in response to this this article is that well why are you coming at the Democrats for this if everyone plays the game then shouldn't they be on a level playing field and you know sort of uh, uh, hate the game but not the player if you will yeah. and and to, to that I would say if if the standard that we're holding ourselves to is that those other people that we don't like are doing it as well then perhaps we're not holding ourselves to a very high standard. All right. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Thank you very much for having me.